This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. You know, folks, you never really appreciate America until you travel overseas. And one of the first things you get homesick for is the spectacular culinary diversity we have right here at home. I mean, try to find good pizza in Tokyo, or decent Mexican food in Berlin. But in the USA, just about every imaginable cuisine is represented, and thanks to the best of all kitchen utensils, that great American melting pot, foods that began as ethnic dishes brought over by our ancestors have evolved into deliciously unique American dishes as immigrants and their children and their children's children moved around the country, bringing those recipes with them, making them their own along the way, as they substituted ingredients to make the most of the local bounty and approximate a particular element that perhaps simply wasn't available in the U.S. Over time, it's led to thousands of unique regional dishes that are every bit as iconic and representative of their own little corner of America as any state flower or local sports team. Think about it. Wherever you're from, there's at least one food that makes you nostalgic for your childhood and speaks of home to you. It can't be found anywhere else. In fact, chances are a person who lives a state or two over may never have even heard of it. It's your own special little thing. If you're from Maryland, maybe it's she-crab soup or crawfish pie in Louisiana. Some of their origins are right in the name, like Chicago deep dish pizza, Nashville hot chicken, and Cincinnati chili. And then there are the dishes you probably never heard of unless you happen to come from that particular little pocket of America, such as chislick, that's a meat skewer from the southern part of South Dakota, or runza, a kind of savory hand pie specific to Nebraska. At church suppers, roadside diners, and county fairs across the country, America is lousy with great local eats. And today, I'm going to celebrate that abundance with one of America's greatest master chefs, Mario Batali, who has a new book called Big American Cookbook, 250 Favorite Recipes from Across the USA. He's one of the most recognized and respected chefs in the world, with 24 restaurants, including his first restaurant, Babo, which received a Michelin star, and Lupa, Esca, and Otto, sounds like an Italian law firm, as well as Del Posto, Terry Lodge, all in New York City, and Osteria Mosa in Los Angeles, along with restaurants in Hong Kong, Las Vegas, Singapore, Boston, and Connecticut, and his grocery stores called Italy in New York and Chicago. Mario was named Man of the Year in the Chef category by GQ magazine in 1999. In 2002, he won the James Beard Foundation's Best Chef of New York City Award. And in 2005, the James Beard Foundation awarded Mario Outstanding Chef of the Year. Mario was also the recipient of the 2001 D'Artagnan Cervena, a prestigious food industry lifetime achievement award. He's written a dozen cookbooks, including Molto Italiano, which won him another James Beard Award, but you probably know him best from his many appearances as a judge and as a contestant on the Food Network's Iron Chef, 
or from his cooking-slash-talk show called The Chew, which airs on ABC every weekday. Today, Mario will take us on a delicious culinary tour of America that will cover eight distinctive regions and local treats with names like Scrapple and Boiled Dinner. We'll talk about the difference between Southern cornbread and New England corn muffins. We'll cover the age-old debate over New England clam chowder versus Manhattan clam chowder. And we'll talk about America's remarkable regional diversity of barbecue. We'll discuss the history of America's regional cuisines and how dishes from the old country evolved into something completely different and special when they came here. Mario will reminisce about his own family tradition of pickling and preserving their own fruits and vegetables and where his love of food came from, how he maintains quality and consistency in all his restaurants, where he thinks the next big culinary scene is about to emerge, He'll share a few cooking tips, we'll talk about the paradox of locally grown organic food sources, and whether a well-done steak should be a disqualifier for being president. Coming up with Chef Mario Batali in just a moment. My guest today is chef, writer, restaurateur, and host of The Chew, which airs weekdays on ABC. He opened his first restaurant, Babo Restaurante, in New York City in what, what year 1998. was 1998. And he now has 26 locations around the world that include acclaimed restaurants like Del Posto, Lupa, Auto, Esca in New York, and Mosa here in L.A., where I'm joining him and his Epicurean Markets, Italy, in New York City and Chicago. Among his many awards, Mario Batali has won Best Chef New York City and Outstanding Chef of the Year from the James Beard Foundation. Mario is also the author of 12 cookbooks, including his latest venture, which is a nostalgic tour of America with some old favorites that you'll likely be familiar with. It's called Big American Cookbook, 250 Favorite Recipes from Across the USA. Chef Mario Batali, thanks for having me over to your marvelous restaurant, Mosa, and for sitting down with me. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure to have you. First, I'll warn you, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be an exercise in frustration for you because I can't boil water. <laughs> that doesn't frustrate me in the least. But I, I have to say, I appreciate that you have a mini chapter at the very end of this that is basic recipes where you teach people how to make a tomato sauce or a pie crust, because that's about the level that I'm at. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people don't really get pie crust and they're worried about it, so they end up buying them at the store, which isn't that evil. Yeah. But once you've mastered it, which doesn't take that much time or that much effort, it's a really good thing to know. There's a lot of pies in this book because I've never really yeah. captured recipes for desserts that often, but in America, they're just so prevalent and so delicious that capturing a good pie crust is a worthy technique to pick up. Yeah, this is very dessert heavy for you. Well, because all of my previous books were mostly about Italian cooking, and Italians mm -hmm. just, uh, as much as we think of them as eating gelato and pastry, it's really for Italians after dinner. They basically eat fruit, <laughs> and they'll have ice cream on the way to dinner, but they don't see it as a dessert at all. It's just kind of a sweet treat in the middle of the daytime. I'm, it's funny because I'm one of those people who I love going to your restaurants, 
But in terms of cooking, I, I like it when you cook for me <laughs> or your chefs that, that, cook for that, me. That's a relationship so that works learning. out perfect for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, where did your love of food come from? Because you were studying Spanish theater at Rutgers. How did you go from that to master chef? Well, I grew up in a family uh, on both sides of the Cascade Mountains in Washington State. And for us, the family experience wasn't... Uh, watching TV that much. It was more like going outside, going to the lower valley market on the eastern side of the state, buying vegetables in season at very inexpensive prices and pickling and canning. That's kind of what our family defined ourselves by. We didn't really spend a lot of time going out to dinner. We rarely went out to dinner. We ate at home and it was because I always just figured we thought it was better. But for us, like the prize was to go out to a fast food restaurant. And that was like two or three times a year. So food was always a big part of my culture. And But Keep in mind, back in the 70s and 60s, cooking wasn't a noble profession. It was the last thing you did after you got out of the military before you went to jail. <laughs> and, you know, when you decided to be a cook in the 70s, it wasn't like your mom would say, hey, my son's going to be a doctor or a chef. <laughs> and now suddenly it's a different world. So I was yeah. lucky enough to get excited about food and its profession at the time that Americans were getting excited about food as a profession and restaurant going became kind of like a sport as opposed to merely fuel. You just mentioned how pickling and canning was a big thing in your family. It was like a family activity. Right. You know, I guess now we kind of think of that as some kind of a hipster luxury to be able to have time to can. And But you, you talk about the fact that it was born out of necessity. Canning used to be something you would do to extend the season and make the most of the bounty before the food spoiled. Right, exactly. And, and it also became a way for mostly women, but some men, to express their individuality and also their prowess in the kitchen. There was always at the state fair, there were pickle contests and pie contests. And <laughs> those are examples of craftsmanship in the early phases of kind of popular recognition of cooking as an art, where the, the person who could really make it something remarkable or memorable, a bread and butter pickle was something really special, as was a kosher dill, as was a dilly bean. So, you know, now that it's it's kind of become pastime as opposed to necessity. It's also a very interesting way to cooks express for cooks to express kind of their their inner heart, as as, as you know, personalizing things that they've read before and kind of modifying mm -hmm. them to become their own family's recipes. Yeah, and as someone who has never pickled anything in his life or preserved anything. I guess I'm learning from the book that you have to have the right jars and there's a whole process. So what are the salient points of proper canning? Proper canning, make sure you follow the instructions that come within the mason jar. And that's basically okay. that you have to boil them and allow them to cool. Then you have to put the right salinity and acidity in with whatever vegetables you're going to do. Then to can them, you put the jar on the, you put the lid on the jar and you put them in the canning pot and cook them until the lid shrinks back or pops up. Mm. And it's something that is honestly, it could be life or death. So pay attention to these <laughs> rules because botulism can happen very quickly. <laughs> okay. So and this is probably by not pickle. where I want to begin. No, it's a great way to go. It's a <laughs> yeah. great way to start because you'll know. Okay. But there's also easy pickles where you just put hot brine over vegetables in the refrigerator pickles. And after a couple of weeks, they start to just kind of break down. But it's a great way to start getting excited about pickles because there's no risk. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I loved about reading this book is it's a celebration sort of of the melting pot of America and the fact that 
people arrived here with these old world recipes and often didn't have the ingredients they were used to and they adapted and they experimented and often you had you know Italians who maybe landed in New York and ended up in New Orleans or <laughs> Swedes in Milwaukee right well that's what kind of makes it interesting and i mean as i travel around the country you can see where pockets of each separate culture that settled there kind of spread their wings a little bit and became something else i mean there was no there was a kind of Creole cooking in France, but there was no Acadian, and there certainly wasn't any Cajun. And that uh, divine congruence that formed the Cajun cooking was something that's so remarkable. And it's the one, I'd say it's one of our unique, purely American forms. Well, you were talking about it, it kind of reminds me of my own family, how our New Year's dinner is almost bigger than Christmas. And what it is, it's this hybrid of you know, kind of our German heritage and Southern soul food. So we always look forward to it. My mom makes sauerkraut and sausage and pork loin and pork ribs in Ooh, sauerkraut. And then we have black so eyed good. peas and collard greens and oh, cornbread. Really? And oh, that. that's very cool. And it's so remarkable, like barbecue. There's yeah. nothing quite like barbecue anywhere else in the world. They have always used yeah. fire to cook meat and smoke. But when you have a North Carolina barbecue, chopped with the North Carolina sauce, not some sweet sticky sauce out of a jar or a plastic squirt bottle. But when you have it right, it's, it's elevating. It's, it's mm. inspiring. It makes you think that North Carolina might be a mecca of some kind. <laughs> and then you go to South Carolina and you taste their mustard sauce and you taste the way they do their... I mean, there's five mm -hmm. distinct kinds of barbecue yeah. in a 200-mile circle. It's something so yeah. remarkable. Well, I'm from Texas. We're all about right, beef. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then you go to Texas and it's a whole nother yeah. jam and there's brisket that, 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 that boggles your mind. I mean, it's something so remarkable that we have here. It's really, it's astonishing. Yeah, I've always been amazed by the diversity of barbecue in America right. and how regional it is right. and how people are obsessive about and whether Texas it's doesn't wet, do barbecue, that many, dry. Right, exactly. Yeah. There's a rub and then there's a smoke and then there's a slice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, there, there are bound to be those food snobs out there who would turn their noses up at whoopie pie or, uh, you know, cornbread and, you know, hoppin' John and stuff like that. But I guarantee you, even those people, if they thumb through the book enough, they're going to find something that's going to bring a tear to their eye right. and, and make them nostalgic. These dishes are of the place they're from. There is a sense of home to them. Well, thank you. That's, a, that's exactly what I was hoping to capture. And often as, a, as someone from not there, it's hard to capture that, and, and the, the, my, my studies or my, my research led me to talking to everybody from the cashier at the movie theater to the waitress to the line cook or the chef or the car dealer or the taxi driver about all these recipes because to capture the exact nuance of what made it so exciting to eat a Iowa loose beef sandwich is something that you really have to talk to them about. The recipe's not complicated, but getting it just right and following the steps in the right way is a, is a cool thing. That's why these recipes are kind of fun, but none of them are as complicated as the rest of my books. Yeah, and where would people recognize some of these dishes? Where would, you, you would it would be a diner the, food? Maybe or? a diner, maybe just a local restaurant. Certainly not a place with reservations, <laughs> a cocktail program, or a wine list. No Michelin stars? No Michelin stars. <laughs> but you might see a lot of this stuff also at, uh, say, a state fair, mm -hmm. which is, I think, probably the greatest celebration of regional cooking in America. When you get there and you, and you go to have a... In Indianapolis, you have a breaded pork tenderloin sandwich, and it's just on a regular yeah. hamburger bun, but it is so 
transporting when you have one there, and the, and the meat overcomes over the, over the bun. bun. Exactly, it's, <laughs> it's like but it's something so delicious, and the porkiness yeah. of the pork there is just something so. It's it's so not so much important that it becomes important. Yeah, and you know, you grew up in Washington State. I think for the about the first fifteen years of your life. Correct. Are there dishes in here, or maybe dishes not in the book, that are especially evocative of your upbringing? Well, anything with salmon for me, and you know, yeah. we did we did some pretty simple dishes. I'm a, I'm a big fan of blackberries. My favorite dessert, of course, is um, blackberries and ice cream. But whenever you use blackberries or you use anything from Walla Walla, the onions are kind of fantastic. And it's just, uh, they're just, it, it captures the whole state. But even the Lomi Lomi, I mean, when you talk about stuff from Hawaii, that was like we were eating that kind of a tuna when long before sushi was groovy and long before it was hip. So it's very simple. And you have the book broken down into eight distinct regions. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the best ofs of each region? <clears throat> I think the, I would say that for the South, because there's a lot of stuff that kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. You know, like Buffalo isn't really in the Midwest, but it kind of is on a Great Lake. So it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so I would say that from New England, for me, one of my favorites is something called Stuffies, where they take these big clams and kind of chop them up and put them in with toasted breadcrumbs. And it's really fantastic. In the Southeast, I would say that I love <clears throat> a fried grouper sandwich. Mm -hmm. When you're on the Gulf Coast, I'm a big fan of the jambalaya. Oh, yeah. When I'm in the Midwest, I think uh, the pierogies uh, are fantastic, or the runza from Nebraska. When you're in Texas, for me, the green chili braised lamb shanks are fantastic, but I think the big bowl of red is surprising for a lot of Americans because we think most Americans think chili comes with beans, and it yeah, is not. Not in Texas. It is not a bean dish. <laughs> I can tell you. Um, and then in California, I think like the date shakes from Coachella drive me kind of crazy because they're they're not what you expect to see in a cookbook. And when you try these things yeah. and they're so simple, but they're so evocative of the place and so much in the back pocket of everyone that lives where they're from. That's when it becomes something really interesting to me. Now, how did you come across these recipes? Because people tend to guard their family recipes like the nuclear codes. Right. You know, I have this image of you prying it out of grandma's dead hand. No. You know, a little <laughs> cue card. I killed no one in the production <laughs> yeah. of this book. No, you know what? Americans, when asked in a way that doesn't look invasive, but more like, you know, I love this dish. Tell me a little bit about it. It's not like I never asked anyone to write down a recipe. I okay. talked to them about it because I didn't want to. I didn't want to steal a trademark something. I didn't want it yeah. printed. I wanted to live it in my head for a little while and then figure out what it was. So you talk to three or four people, and then you kind of assemble one, and then you cook it. And is, is that kind of where it was? Or was, was it cheesier? Or was it creamier? Or was it drier? And when you finally get to the end of the recipes, you're like, yeah, I think this is the one that I tasted. <laughs> and, and people are more than willing to share. You know, Americans are an amazing group of people. When the chips are down, Americans are more generous. And when they're talking about their food and you get them in that kind of nostalgic, sweet place of their childhood, they talk all day long about it. They're that excited. <laughs> so it wasn't necessarily you getting these recipes. It was you replicating the recipes. Right. Exactly. And so there was probably a lot of trial and error there. Right. Trial and error. And also I would look in the Wednesday paper of each town where they all talk about their dishes and, <laughs> you know, go through the state fair and, and you know, kind of just figure it out. That's fun. You said that it took you three years to make this book. Was there a lot of traveling involved in well, this? Well, it was basically 20 years. Okay. And I collected about a thousand recipes. Then over three years of process, it was reducing and, and, and editing down to the 250 that it has. So yeah, it was a, a three-year 
book project, but it was a yeah. lifetime of collecting because I'm a collector. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Chef Mario Batali when we come back in just a minute. I have to say, this is a very humble cookbook to come from a celebrity chef because, in a sense, it's not you showing off. It's you celebrating and respecting these traditional dishes. You said that these are not your interpretation of these dishes. These recipes represent the classic take on these dishes. It's not throw down with Bobby Flay where no. you're trying to one-up anyone. No, and in <laughs> fact, you'll see a couple of, uh, in, in, in several, if not many of these recipes, there's a, in, in orange type near the bottom. It's like, if I was going to make this at my house today, <laughs> I might throw in a squeeze of lime juice, a handful of cilantro, and some hot, you know, smoky hot sauce. Because I like to jack it up a little bit, but I didn't want these to become my interpretations of American classics, in which case it wouldn't be very recognizable. It would be more like I just drove around and, kind of jacked up everything that I could find. <laughs> this is actual transportative recipes, mostly as exactly as I found them. It is. And what's funny, though, is that you, you do respect the tradition of, you know, the fact that many of these are recipes that were handed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And you actually encourage people, if they want, to uh, tweak them. Modify them. Find what, they, find what them. works for them and their family. Exactly. Don't be afraid to make it your own. Right, exactly. And then and in the same sense... I exhort people at a certain point in the book, don't be afraid to live outside the, the directive of doing everything exactly right. You know, we live in a world where we look for farm to table. Mm -hmm. We want to be completely seasonally correct. We want to buy food from all of our vetted sources. We want to only have the purest, greatest <laughs> single things. But every now and then you're going to want to have a Caesar salad in February. And you live in Minnesota. Well, there ain't no local Caesar salad to be had. You're going to yeah. have to import something from California. And that's that in itself is not bad. My point is that if you have to choose something and, and it's not everything's vetted and perfect and, and along the rigorous demands of being perfect as a cook, <laughs> you haven't lost. Yeah. You could still play. You're not eating at a fast food restaurant. In my opinion, if you're cooking at home, you've won 95% of the battle. And that's what I'm really <laughs> hoping people will do more of. Yeah, and that's you know, almost in line with the tradition and respecting the kind of the origins of these recipes, this idea that, you know, many of, the, many of these recipes came from somewhere very, very far away. Right. People landed here and they've often had to adjust and, uh, and, and, and conform their recipe because uh, they probably didn't always have, you know, polenta or, right. <laughs> or whatever exactly. ingredients they were or used like to in the old country. Odd, some odd creamy dairy product that now they're using Philadelphia cream cheese for, yeah. which isn't bad. I mean, I think it's all right. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I do respect uh, particularly about the book is that you do say, okay, you know, not everyone lives next to Whole Foods. I mean, Correct. You know, you, most people it, it, don't. In fact, yeah. I mean, it would be nice if you can get locally sourced organic produce right. and whatnot, but don't beat yourself up if right. you don't. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's definitely it's a first world problem. The fact that we even care about these things. I mean, you know, you have a fantastic charity that provides lunches to kids in South Africa. Mm -hmm. That African kid won't give a damn if right. if the chicken he's eating has GMOs in it. Right. Or, you know, for one, there's nothing like, there's no such thing probably as locally sourced for right. that kid in right. Africa. Exactly. But So don't give up. That's the point. But, you know, in yeah. terms of paying attention to that, do what you can. 
Yeah. But never lose hope. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what, that, what is the name of that charity? Because that's a great the Lunchbox idea. Lunchbox Foundation. Yeah. The Lunchbox Run by Foundation. Woman named Topaz. Okay. Fantastic. You know, and you have another foundation, the Mario Batali Foundation. Correct. Tell us a little about that. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, it occurred to me probably 15 years ago that a lot of uh, the charitable asks, of which I get about 200 a week, to donate something to somebody, and, and all of them are valid. But I realized that I should probably try to focus it so I could make the biggest splash. So I thought to myself, and I thought with my family, my wife Susie and our two kids, Benno and Leo, I thought, what is it that we think is probably the most needy of all? And I realized that children's hunger relief is probably the single mm -hmm. biggest problem we have in the richest country of all time during its richest phase of all time. That one in five children in America could possibly be going hungry is the most preposterous thing I can think of. And, and knowing that they're we need no research at all to figure out how to cure hunger. And our fundamental issue in America is that we throw away 40% of everything we grow and produce in the food world. Yeah. So what we need to do is figure out how to incentivize the production of food and the and the distribution of it to people that need it. So my foundation doesn't do that. What my foundation does is we're just trying to figure out how to first feed everybody. Mm -hmm. So that's through the Food Bank for New York and that's through Feed America right. and, and in any of a thousand different places, that's where we devote a lot of our time. The other two are with children's disease research and children's hunger relief because I see all three of those as very intrinsically tied to investing in a future for a better America. And that's not a political slogan. That's the <laughs> real thing. Well-fed, yeah. well-cared-for kids yeah. that can read stand a chance to improve America in a better way. And we need to think about that in a very long-term fashion. Especially in this, you know, sharing economy era that we're entering, right. there ought to be a better way to, to not waste so much and get food that, you know, isn't being utilized by one person to another person who really needs it. Well, hunger relief at a certain point in our lifetimes has been hijacked and put into the charity file. Mm -hmm. And it should be the investment file. So it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, it's not only a question of, of the strategy, it's a question of vernacular and where we put it in our minds. Yeah, we look at it that way. Pickling and preserving is kind of the world's best green initiative. Right, exactly, because <laughs> you're not wasting a darn thing at the end yeah. of the harvest. You're not just throwing it under or tilling it in or throwing it in the garbage can. Figuring out a way to incentivize some businesses to be able to redistribute this food and make profit on it. It won't happen if people are just doing it out of the goodness of their heart, because there's just not enough big hearts. Yeah. What we need to do is have people make profit by doing the right thing. And we're, that's, I, I don't have the answer yet. <laughs> um, you know, I'd be curious. You started out with one restaurant. You now have, what, 25 restaurants? Uh -huh. or twenty? Yeah, 26. I mean, which is extraordinary. What is your secret for maintaining consistency at that level? Well, it wasn't like I and my partner, Joe Bastianich, it wasn't like we decided to throw darts at a map and say, all right, let's go here <laughs> with our, you know, expansion program. Basically, the only reason we opened new restaurants is because we had talent that had reached the top of the glass mm -hmm. ceiling within the existing framework, meaning that it was a great sous chef who was so talented, he or she could run the restaurant all by themselves, but they couldn't take over the executive chef position because the executive chef already existed. <clears throat> so we said to them, why don't we open a new restaurant? Do you have any money to put together or do you have an investor or do you want to do a part of it or do you want to get sweat equity and see what we can do with it? <clears throat> so what we created was a, a network of chef and general manager partners who work with okay. us and we open these new restaurants and their consistency is based on the fact that they're operators, they're owners with us. So they wouldn't oh. want to throw things away because it's easier, cheaper or, or less laborious. They're watching the bottom line just like I watch the bottom line if I'm not there.
Okay. Are you pretty good about not having to micromanage and being able to delegate or finding people that you trust that you can delegate to? So far, so good. I mean, the beauty is that with the internet and cell phones, I can approve any menu change any day, anytime anyone wants it, no matter where I am in the world. So it doesn't happen so radically. And there's no kind of continental shift that I wouldn't be aware of in the restaurants if I wasn't there for a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, At the commercial restaurant level, is there one thing that you can think of that is the biggest secret to running an efficient or <clears throat> successful kitchen? Yes. The biggest thing to realize is you, as the owner, you don't have to make all the money yourself. If you share mm. the profits and share the success of the restaurant with people, you'll get longer lasting employees, more committed to the total success of the restaurant than if you diminish them or don't pay them properly or don't allow them to share in the fruits of their own labor. And that's the biggest point of the whole story. Whenever I see someone who operates on your level, the one thing that impresses me more than anything is when I can go to a restaurant and I find a dish that I like and I know I can go back and it will be just the same as it will be exactly what I remembered. And it's very rare in many cases that you can accomplish that. Right. Oh, that's constantly tasting. I mean, you know, that's what Mm -hmm. the chefs have to do. You have to, I mean, the way that I train someone is I make the dish for them and we taste it. Then I make the dish with them and we taste it. Then they make the dish with me and I taste it. And then they make the dish by themselves and hand it to me and I taste it. And if that doesn't go well, we do it again. And if that doesn't go well, we do it again until I'm confident that they can do it. And all of the executive chefs and all of the sous chefs are exactly the same way. So I can count on the consistency of palate only because we've, repeti- we've, we've gone through it repetitively so often that it's almost like stretching a muscle. You get used to the taste of two-minute calamari Sicilian lifeguard style. <laughs> After 18 years at Babo, I can attest that it tastes exactly as it did when we opened. Getting back to the book... You also have drink recipes for each region. Uh, And I noticed that you're pretty heavy on whiskey drinks, which I love. Um, What is your personal drink of choice? You know, for me, I'm a big wine fan. But uh, for a cocktail, I got to say, there's nothing quite like an old fashioned for me. There you go. Just a simple, good (laughs) bourbon, a little bit of uh, exactly what it takes to make it right. I like just a little orange bitters, a little dash of squeeze of a twist of orange rind and I am happy with a pickled cherry that came from the recipe from my grandpa Leon the Framboise. <laughs> and the other things that was fun in reading this book is the differences in the regions in attempting pretty much the same dish. For instance, what is the difference between a traditional southern cornbread and New England corn muffins? Well, in the south they don't put any sugar in their cornbread. And right. In the northeast they do. And in all honesty, I love them both. If I'm in the South, I notice it missing though. I like it just a little sweet. And when I make my polenta, I even put a little sugar in it because I think the sugar brings out a little bit more of the corniness that I'm always looking for when I taste it. Now, are you a New England clam chowder guy or a Manhattan clam chowder guy? I live in Manhattan, but I I love New England clam chowder. (laughs) As much as I don't really love the Patriots, because <laughs> I'm a Jets, Giants, and Seahawks fan, I really got to say, I love their chowder. Yeah, and there are a few things in here that I, I'm not, I've never heard of. That's what's fun. It's like there's so many things that I recognize from my youth, and then there's stuff that I just sound crazy that I've never heard of. Like, what is a New England boiled dinner or scrapple? <laughs> Scrapple's kind of like what would be head cheese. You take all of the stuff off of the head and then you kind of fry it up crisp for breakfast. And it's a very cool kind of Pennsylvania thing. And is if it you like haven't spam? had it, no, spam Different. is 
Spam is, well, I don't really know what Spam's made from. But Scrapple, I know what it is. And then a boiled dinner is kind of like an Irish boiled dinner. They put the, the meat in with the cabbage and the potatoes and the carrots. And it's, it's kind of like a one-pot dish that, for me, says a lot about Sunday football. <laughs> and of course there's a whole section dedicated to fried chicken yes which is pretty much my favorite thing in the world well what's your favorite kind i would say southern right. in, in fairness you, you you do cover also nashville hot chicken yes. which is really just arrived in la right we're just starting to come around to is that so that, i have not even experienced that but that's right. kind of a one of the thing everyone's buzzing about i have to try it at some well, point i got to work with carla hall Okay. And uh, on the chew, and she opened Carla's Southern Kitchen, and she does Nashville hot chicken. And I gotta tell you, I used to think I was a real chili head, but I'm beyond yeah. number four, and it goes from one to six. Five and six are beyond my capabilities right now, and I like <laughs> hot. So I just I think it's too. fascinating. I like crunchy. I like fried chicken, crispy and delicious. But that hot chili on it really drives me crazy. But it's not a sauce. It's not like, say, it's like buffalo an oil. wings. No, no. It's, it's like an okay, oil. It's crisp, but spicy. Yeah, huh? But spicy okay. oil goes drizzled onto it at okay. the last second. Like Popeye's? Or is that a joke? I never had a Popeye's. <laughs> you never had a Popeye's? No, and, I, and I've heard it's good. <laughs> it is good. I know. I'm sure. I like <laughs> yeah. biscuits, too. Yeah, it's Carla terrific. makes really good biscuits, too. Oh, okay. Okay. I gotta, I gotta check that out. Um, well, I'm curious, since we're talking about regional cuisine, is there a particular area or city that you think is going to be the next big thing that's kind of just starting to get where it needs to be on the food scene? I would say this only because I get to spend a lot of time there. First of all, I think New Orleans, and without a doubt, is the is pound for pound the greatest thing going on in the oh, country. Yeah. But that's not oh, that's been that. discovered, right? Yeah. I would say that the kind of Midwest Great Lakes yeah. region is okay. where it's happening. There's we I spend a lot of time in northern Michigan, and in the last. 15 years the gastronomy there has gone through the roof and the and the cider makers and the craft brew makers and the wine makers and the cheese makers and the butchers and the curers and the picklers it's it's all going on in such a a fast expression of the delightful terroir of the actual region that it's for me it's it's because maybe i'm seeing it firsthand i haven't spent a lot of time in the southwest but i gotta think you know anywhere where they got the hatch chilies naturally and that whole culture of that kind of spice and that delicious kind of smoky richness is something I got to think I'm going to love too. <laughs> Where did the Crocs come from? My wife gave me them. Okay. When uh, I was just starting in the kitchen at my, you know, in the Babo days, she gave me shoes because I was burning through sneakers too fast. And okay. I didn't like the clunky chef shoes and I didn't like the wooden chef clocks. So she gave me these. They were from a fishing outfit in Colorado because they drain <laughs> when you walk through the oh, stream. Yeah. And that, that also sense. kept them cool, and it diminished the stink foot of a chef. <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, they're quite a fashion statement, and I love them. Okay, good in a kitchen. A very good in a Slip kitchen. Slip resistant. Slip resistant if you get the professional ones. The ones with the holes okay. on the top tend to leak a little bit if you were to drop something hot on your feet. Ooh. Yeah. <clears throat> so you okay. use the professional ones, which have a full cover. Before we go, not to get all political, but it is the season. Okay, Donald Trump supposedly likes his steak very, very well done. His butler says he likes it rocking on the plate. Should that be a disqualifier for being president? Well, I believe President Barack Obama likes a well-done steak, too. Oh, does he? Does he really? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I didn't know that. So, have no, you talked to him about just, this? I have. Have you consulted either of these people I about this? I haven't actually you talked should. to uh, candidate Trump. Okay. But I have talked to candidate Hillary Clinton, and she likes her steaks like I like them, which qualifies her for president. Which is? Medium rare. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Okay, I wasn't even sure if she ate steak because it builds on a vegan diet. It builds I on think, a vegan right? diet that adds a little bit of fish because he needs a little bit of protein. Okay. So he'll eat some fish, but mostly vegan. 
Okay. After years of cheeseburgers, you know, he's got to pay attention a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't we all? Well, I promise you, I'm going to attempt one of these dishes as much. I do barbecue, by the way. Fantastic. Barbecue, I've gotten compliments on, but for some reason that doesn't translate to me going no, in the kitchen. That's, I don't that's know. a special movement. The barbecue move yeah. is something you can master without ever having to touch a pan. <laughs> well, I'm going to try one of these and I'm going to report back. Fantastic. I'm going to send you my emergency I'll gladly room bill. support you on yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, for the burns and you know, the reattaching my pinky finger there and whatever else. So, well, the book is called Big American Cookbook, 250 Recipes from Across the USA. Chef Mario Batali, thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Chef Mario Batali for inviting me over to Mosa Osteria and sitting down with me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then you can order Big American Cookbook 250 Recipes from Across the USA on Amazon. I'll include links in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickassnews.com. You can watch his show The Chew every weekday on ABC. Visit his website at mariobatali.com for all kinds of other fun stuff. And follow him on Twitter at at Mario Batali. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at KA Politics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.